Welcome to the History of Networking, where we drag all of the skeletons out of the wiring closet and ponder the ghosts of protocols past. So the Internet 2 is really designed to replace the Internet, right? That's why it's called the Internet 2. That's what you would think. But that's really not why it's called the Internet 2. Today on the History of Networking, we're joined by Dale Finkelson, who is going to explain the Internet 2, the history of the network and what the purposes were. When I was graduating, finishing up my master's degree, working as a uh, research assistant to uh, the computer science Unix administrator, and she got hired by Doug, Doug Gale, um, into a different role. And her position opened up, and and then I started. I, I was able to move into that position. At the same time, Doug was getting the grants for uh, Midnet, which was one of the you know the original uh, regional networks that NSF funded. And um, he he basically called me up one day and said, "So you're you're a Unix guy, right?" And I said, "Well, yeah, that's what I do." And he said, "So you understand this Berkeley networking stuff, right?" And I said, well, of course, it's in the manuals. I, you know, <laughs> it's in the manuals. <laughs> and um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I had no clue, quite honestly, but it, it just seemed like no was absolutely the wrong answer. Um, and and so he brought me into his into the role of the technical role at the formation the formation of Midnet. And when he got the grant. You know, we we spent a good bit of time, you know, selecting hardware for from the original hardware from Midnet, figuring out the how we, how it was going to get structured, how what the how it was going to get built, working with um, Ruth Mekalecki to get the uh, the Lex at that time to actually provide us circuits. It was very very difficult to to get them to sell you a circuit, a bare circuit at that time. Um, they just didn't understand that that was a market that they could play in. Um, and then working with the other campuses to kind of get them to the point where they actually had a clue what we were trying to do and, and assign some people to work on, you know, trying to figure out how to, how to take IP back into their campuses because none of them had, uh, uh, I don't think any of the campuses that we worked with originally um, actually had an IP network on campus when we started. Um, I mean, UNL didn't either. We we had to create, you know, and then we had all the, you know, internally we had all the kind of Ethernet wars that went on, you know. Um, token, token ring versus Ethernet versus whatever, whatever. Yeah, yeah. East, campus, East Campus was historically token ring, and City Campus, which uh, Doug and I put together, was historic, was always Ethernet. And, you know, we managed to kind of make them work. But anyway, so we, we you know, basically took the time and um, put together the the 56 kilobit midnet network. Um, it's just a ring that started, you know, it went from Champaign-Urbana around through Iowa, um, down through Kansas and um, Oklahoma and Missouri, and then back to Champaign-Urbana where we hit the NSFNet supercomputer site, which was one of the hubs of the original NSFNet, um, and we had we had one of the 
Um, I actually went up to Ann Arbor at that time and after after a while and built the one of the original one of the the RT based um, routers. I don't know if you've ever seen one of those, but it was basically um, I think it was four. I think there were four foot tall racks filled with RT, uh, IBM RTs, which was, um, you know, their, one of their, their um, Unix systems. At the I was going to say, it's just a host, right? It's just a host-based yeah, system. Yeah, host. And you have like... But there were, there were, I don't remember how many of them there were in there, but there were, there were a bunch of them in there. And, and basically they functioned as a router. Um, in 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 some, I mean, they were an IP router, um, though it was a very you know huge, and they lasted for a while. I don't know whatever happened to it. It was I'm sure somebody just disposed of it eventually, but um, I probably did actually <laughs> um, before we switched over to um, to the AGSs and and so forth. The original Midnet used Proteon routers. We had we we talked to Cisco. Um, and, and we had presentations from Cisco and Proteon, and um, but Cisco didn't do BGP at the at that time, and and even though we, as it turned out, didn't really have a use for BGP, we didn't really need it. We determined that we wanted to have it in, you know, have the capability of of using it, um, so we at least understand it. So we started out with with the Proteons. Um, they they ultimately proved to be kind of a pain. You had to reboot them every time you made a config change. And the and the configuration was through SNMP, as I recall, and the Proteons. Is that correct? I mean, it was yeah. basically a command line SNMP interface. Yeah, it was the 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 interface was horrible. I mean, it was just it was just awful. And um, but they worked. I mean, they they routed packets really well, but. They were not um, the friendliest things to work with, for sure. So ultimately, we we got rid of those and then transitioned over to AGSs, um, and then kind of went through that whole process over time. Um, you know, and so that all that all predated the um, Internet too by quite a long time. Obviously, you know, we went through the various stages of of with NSF and. Um, Using Champaign Urbana, and then ultimately getting direct links into uh, Kansas City and so forth. So you know we were able to drop the the, and we experimented with various architectures um, in MidNet at various times. It, there was always a very large argument. It wasn't exactly an argument; it was more a discussion about whether or not MidNet would ever actually own infrastructure, um, as opposed to the campuses simply bind connections into like a, a, a single hub, you know, use a spoke, spoke kind of architecture where the campus would would pay. At various times, MidNet would in fact own some amount of the backbone that comprised the the the, the, the network. At other times, um, that would that would lessen. Um, and by the time it became GPN, I think um, there, uh, when Rick Summerhill took it over, GPN didn't actually own any any actual circuits. They owned some routers and so forth, but there was no no um, physical infrastructure associated with it. And and that you know part of the problem there was always that nobody else wanted to pay for something that the other campuses were using, the other states were using. 
they always thought that they were gonna end up on the short end of that particular um, arrangement. So they were much happier to spend money for their own connectivity, but not the more general kind of connectivity. So it's interesting but, because Champaign-Urbana is right outside, oh, well, McGuire Air Force Base is right outside of Champaign-Urbana, and that was the big city I used to go to when I was on McGuire. So it's just interesting that I didn't realize a lot of that was going on the same time I was actually there, which is just... Yeah, it was, it was NCS. I mean, that's where NCSA was, right? And, and NCSA was one of the original sites that were funded by the, by the NSF um, as part of NSF, the original, you know, the 56K NSF before it, you know, it, it, when Merritt took it over later on, it grew and, and kind of moved away from using just the, uh, the I think it was, what's it, Pittsburgh, NCSA, I think it was Cornell. San Diego, I'm probably forgetting some someone else that were the original um, supercomputer centers. And remember, the point of NSFNet originally was to interconnect the supercomputer centers and get campuses connected to them so they could use um, that resource that NSF was funding. That was sort of their that was the mission, the original mission of it before it kind of transitioned into the bigger thing that it ultimately became. And, you know, I'm sure that, you you know, you've talked to people who know a whole lot more about the history of NSFNet than I do. But, you know, ultimately that um, NSF backed out of it, you know, or basically said, you know, we've accomplished what we wanted to do. And and we're going to transition this over to the private, to the, you know, the private in, uh, to industry at that time. And it was um, blanking on which telco it was. What ultimately caused um, Internet 2 to get started was the that uh, the transition to the private world really didn't ultimately provide the campuses the connectivity that they need that they felt they needed for um, their own personal you know for their research purposes and so forth. Obviously, the the telcos were treating the backbone as a service, and were building it in the way they would build a service, not in the way that the research networking world wanted such thing built. I mean, the fundamental difference here was if you're, if you're a corporation and you're running a network, you're one, you're, you're not trying to overbuild, right? You're trying to build to what you actually need. And you're probably perfectly happy to overprovision because you're figuring the statistical uses of it are going to balance out the over-provisioning and it's going to be fine. The fundamental rule about building a research network or the fundamental principle about building a research network that developed was you should be able to uh, support any large research flows that happen your way. So you have to leave enough overhead to accommodate pretty much anything that might come at you. So the, those things tended to never be, I think the rule often was um, anytime you hit, I don't know, I can't remember, 50, 40, 50, 60% utilization on a path, um, you need to augment the path because if it's, if it's higher than that and something fails, that path is not going to hold the traffic. Or if you get a, you know, a very large flow going through it, that path is not going to hold the uh, hold the, the traffic. So, you know, 
originally there there were a, a small number of people that collected and and determined that they wanted to start building their own network and you know they got various universities I think there was 30 some universities that were at like the really original thought about doing this and they were willing to fund it and they got merit involved and and so forth and then as as that as that word of that got out many of us also then went back and and said you know we want to we want to be part of this as well because it's a it's a kind of thing that is going to be every bit as useful to uh, to us as to anyone else. Um, so ultimately, you know, uh, the 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 regional network community got connected up to to Internet Two to the original Abilene. I think the original network in Internet Two was called Abilene. Um, never did actually have a reason for that, but. What you just described kind of sounds like QS to me, but with just throwing money at the problem. Pretty much, yeah. Why Why wouldn't QS work for QS? QOS. Oh, QOS. So, um, <laughs> uh, there were uh, there were a number of working groups that were formed in the original Abilene project. One of them was IPv6, which is one that I ran, and um, and. Uh, but another one was actually the QOS work, uh, QOS working group, and and um, there was a great deal of energy put into that. Um, Guy Alms uh, had a lot to do with it, and there was a young man that worked worked with, or sort of worked for Guy, I think, that that put in a huge amount of energy. You know, fundamentally, it never worked. I mean, it, you could just never get it to the point where you could be assured that you'd have the capacity you wanted or needed, or that you had a reasonable way to determine who was going to get priority and who wasn't going to get priorities. And, you know, it was a whole lot easier and more effective just simply to throw money at the problem. You know, it was a lot of money, I'm sure, but... It was also a investment in capability that gave you that gave the campuses the sense that they could really do whatever they wanted to do, whatever you know. You didn't have to feel like there was some kind of a of a hold on what you spent your time promoting on your campus for, from from a scientific point of view because there wasn't going to be capacity for it. The limiting capacity was going to be your link to the to the backbone, not the backbone itself. So, do you think that was a matter of where the technology was at that time? No, I actually don't, because um, QoS still doesn't really work. Um, <laughs> the only the only part of it that that people ever did uh, to some degree effectively use was um, this thing called scavenger service. You could you could mark. Uh, there was a bit in the header you could mark so that your traffic could could basically be, you know, if anything else was going on and there wasn't space, your traffic was going to get delayed because it was part of the scavenger service. But that was really the only thing that anyone ever, to, to any that I know of, that anyone ever used effectively. I mean, if you, and if you go back, you know, to, um, oh, I suppose it was um, the 2008 kind of time frame when, uh, or yeah, it was probably a little past that, 
when the the whole um, software driven networking stuff got started, fundamentally, all you're really trying to do there is is mark packets so you know which ones you know one how to route them, but two which ones are more important than others, and um, still never really worked. I mean, people could never really make it be effective in the way that. And I understand I am something of a of a of a um, IP bigot about um, about these things and and you know best effort IP really works better than anything else that has been tried no matter how many times people have tried it to my mind anyway now there are special cases where where other kinds of uh, technologies have proven to be useful and helpful but. Um, but fundamentally, if we, your if your goal is to get packets from A to B, best way to do it is uh, have have uh, good capacity paths that you can run IP on and and get a good a good uh, quality um, TCP operating so that you don't you know have stupid stuff going on with restarts and so forth. But that that has always been the most effective way to to make this stuff go. The open flow stuff. As much effort as people put into it, never, never really got anywhere um, that was all that useful. I mean, it was very useful for for Google internally inside their um, their data centers and for in between their data centers. But that's a really special case of of need and, and use, and it really doesn't apply to the general scientific utilization. And the way that the the way that that research and education networks use networking, uh, you know, that it's it's really much much different. Anyway, that perhaps no, 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 that's but. that's actually good because I think that points out something that was tried and that you found out that it really didn't do what you wanted it to do. So you moved on and did something else, which is you know one of those lessons learned that maybe right, this doesn't right. uh, do what people think it does. Right, and and um, the the current iteration, the current work on on the, the next generation internet uh, internet two is is again driving towards um, more software software control of of the networks um, a little bit differently. I think it's not so much trying to to manage flow, you know, manage capacity. Um, as uh, as it might be just understanding that you don't need to have you know big monster iron all the time to actually do the things that you're trying to do. You can you can get by with fast switching and 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 smart switching that's driven by software as opposed to you know things like the those monster kind of routers that you know that Juniper and MX 960s and so forth that, that people abused. Anyway, yeah, so so one of the things that was actually really important in the first stages of of the the Internet 2 was the, the set of working groups that, that were developed. And you know, there was a there was a routing working group that a guy named Ken Lindell at uh, who was at the time at Berkeley ran. Um, and there was IPv6 that I ran. And I was still at UNL when I was doing that. That was just something that I did um, on the side. There was the QoS working group. There were two or three others as well. And 
Um, one of the things that were was important about those is that the um, engineering director of Abilene was Guy Holmes. I don't know if you've ever talked with Guy. You should. No, we haven't. Uh, he's, but okay. Yeah, he's he's. Uh, last I heard, he was. I, I don't know if he met. He's probably retired at this point. The last job I knew he had was at Texas A and M. Um, he probably still. Well, I think he moved up to Washington or something. But anyway. He he would he would um, bring the working group directors or working group leaders in periodically every every few months, and we would basically sit down with him and talk about what we saw as the need for development of uh, of Abilene, um, the. Uh, you know what what kind of technologies we we thought were was was being requested of us and how it was how it was working what we what we thought they you know they should do in terms of either architecture or um, bringing other kinds of capacities online and so forth and you know my particular focus was getting getting the backbone ipv6 capable which we actually did we we actually got got it able to pass IPv6 packets fairly early on and didn't actually, as it turned out in the long run, matter because nobody would ever, um, even the places that took it down further into their stack, into the network, didn't actually prove all that useful because the, 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 the systems folks never really, uh, until fairly recently, bought into putting it in the, uh, in the system stacks so that you could actually use it. And and while I've been out of that world for a little while, I'm not sure if it's even at this point really at the point where we would have hoped that it was. But but it was that sort of technology that we you know that that was treated as sort of the the uh, next generation of developing um, capabilities for Abilene to make it useful as a research network. Um, I mean, one of the things, for instance, that the routing working group worked on hugely was this thing called the fish problem. Okay. Um, uh, you know, which which basically, I'm not sure I could describe it accurately anymore, but it's basically if you have two inputs and you're trying to get somewhere, you, you really don't always know what paths you're going to take. And you should go back and look it up. There are good descriptions of it, and it's probably been ten years since I thought about what. So is this so? So is one of the solutions you were thinking about there something along the lines of source routing, or something like that? Yeah, it, yeah, yeah, it, it, it yeah, exactly. Um, and um, but you know, understanding how campuses would deal with that kind of a problem was the sort of thing that the working groups were trying to trying to do at that time. And that you know, and and that was then all tied up with what were originally called inlander meetings, the what, the things that became joint techs after a while. The original versions of them were were a combination of um, the um, again I don't remember what inlander stood for, but um, they were one of the hosts of the meetings, and then Internet Two was another one, and those eventually transitioned into joint techs, which. Um, met you know twice a year, two or three times a year on some somebody's campus, and basically was just two days, uh, two two or two and a half days of campus and um, Internet Two folks doing presentations on technical matters, 
related to how you actually operated um, networks and, and technologies that people wanted to do use and and so forth. They were they were probably one of the more important factors in in developing the capabilities around the campus world of um, being able to take advantage of, of the high-speed backbone networks that we're developing. Most of the campuses really didn't have any, any um, capability to do that. And, and through those meetings, it was, you know, fundamentally, they sort of turned out to be these long-term training programs for, uh, for campus engineers that uh, proved really effective in terms of bringing that capability to the, to the campus world. And, and making them able to uh, take you know to de to develop it and 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 again getting the regional networks involved and being able to uh, take advantage of the capabilities that the backbone presented as well. So uh, so a couple of interesting things there. First of all, um, the whole business with IPv6. It's interesting that you say that it didn't turn out to be very useful. Because I remember when Internet 2 was fully IPv6 capable and such a big deal was made out of, well, the Internet 2 is now IP capable. And so, but it didn't turn out like it was a big deal at all from an operational perspective. Is that right? Yeah, it really didn't because um, probably there are probably some places, there's probably some place in the world where you could go find the graphs and, you know, traffic, traffic numbers and so forth. The fact is that that um, you know there were almost no hosts that actually supported it unless you took the time to 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 put it onto a Unix host yourself. There was no support for it in the in the um, uh, in the web in the web. I mean, the, you know, most most of the content providers. In fact, I don't think hardly any of the content providers for for the longest time. Would support it. So even if you wanted to use it, it wouldn't matter. You couldn't couldn't actually go anywhere with it. Um, there were there were you know sort of a select number of people that that put together mail servers and figured out ways to to move some traffic around between themselves, just kind of sort of to prove to themselves that they could and and that it really did work and you know, really could move packets that way. And and you know then there was always the the the, the concerns about security, um, and um, DHCPv6 took bloody forever to get operational. And without wow, a it, lot of people didn't even want to have DHCPv6. They were arguing exactly. against it, which is why it took so long to get operational. Because, right, you know, well we shouldn't need and, it. We have Slack. Well. Yeah, but no. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, you know, all of those things conspired to uh, ultimately, you know, all we could do was was get people to understand that it was something they needed to be concerned about. And we did manage to get, you know, quite a lot of people to go out and to go to Aaron and get, you know, get get address space and and we handed out a lot of address space. Um, Internet 2 got a flash 32, and um, it was a 32, might have even been bigger than that. Uh, Michael Lambert and 
and, and I developed a scheme for handing out address space to all the regionals and campuses that wanted it. And, and we handed out a lot of space and, and a lot of people did kind of experiment with it and so forth, but it, but it never actually became useful. I mean, honestly, even to this, at this point, of course, um, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, last mile vendors are are starting to use it because they don't have the capability of getting address space any longer. And I know ESNet uses is going to use V6 as uh, management for management on ESNet 6, which is kind of cool. But, um, you know, it, it's really taken until the last four or five years before any substantial amount of traffic has started to develop. And even now, I suspect that that it's it's if it's a third of the 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 traffic on the internet, I would be very surprised. The Japanese and and the Koreans were always far far more interested in and spent a lot more time developing tools and and so forth. You know, and the other thing, the the really stupid thing that the people who were developing V6 did back in, in, in the day and, you know, at the IETF was not make it um, backward compatible with V4. Um, you know, to have these things run as ships in the night was just the worst, in retrospect, of course, the worst possible idea because it meant you had to basically double up everything in order to make, to make use of it. And, had, had there been a, and, and all of the various transition mechanisms that people developed, you know, six over four and so forth, they were just really, really unwieldy and, and not terribly reliable and never really caught on in any meaningful way. Had, had the original development been one that, that provided a, you know, a bridge between V4 and V6, I think the V6 stuff would have probably come into play far, far sooner than it did. But, you know, again, hindsight is a, is a wonderful thing. And, and there, there are very good reasons, I'm sure, as I recall, for why people wanted to do it the way they did. I mean, they had a, they had a vision about what, what, was, um, what was going to happen and ultimately did happen. Um, but, their time, their timing was not, their view of the time frame of it was not exactly what turned out, you know, because they didn't anticipate that. So um, why was it called Internet 2? Whenever I heard this way back in the day when I was first talking or listening to this stuff about Internet 2, there was a clear impression that this was going to, like the impression given by the name was this was going to replace the internet or was like a TV version two of the internet or something. Was there a reason for the name? Was it a more grandiose vision or was it? No, if there was there, it, it was never, it was never something that I understood. I mean, my sense was just that it was that, that it denoted a separate infrastructure for different purposes than the general purpose internet. You know, there was always this distinction made between the commodity or commercial internet and internet too. And, and I think that was really all that was, that's all I ever understood it to be was to, to distinguish the fact that 
this infrastructure is being built for a different purpose. You know, it's not there to um, to run corporate, you know, to to provide access for corporate requirements or to build businesses or anything like that. It is there to serve the needs of the research and education community. And, you know, somehow that needs to be distinguished. Okay. Now, there may have been people who had far great, more grandiose visions about what they were trying to do when they called it that. Um, I'm guessing they probably just couldn't think of a different, better name. So it's just a convenient thing. Okay. To- yeah, cool. Cool. So the, I don't, I can't think of anything else to talk about in the history of internet too, unless you have. Um... No, I mean, not so much. I mean, it, you know, it, it, um, it's obviously gone through several iterations, right? I mean, from the original, the original version of it through to the, what is being developed now, the next gen or next engine that's being called NGI, which is basically the 400 gig backbone. Um, and honestly, since I stopped working, I'm, I'm not sure where they're at in that whole process of, of, of development. It obviously got delayed in no considerable, you know, it's, it's been made a lot more difficult because of COVID, um, because there's an awful lot of work that needed to get done in the, in the pops and, and, you know, on site and so forth and getting that stuff scheduled is not as simple as it would have been pre-COVID, but. You know, I think the probably the the most significant thing that ever happened to Internet 2 was um, the stimulus program in 2008 um, when when they were able to go out and get um, money um, as part of the part of the stimulus. That's what allowed them to build the 100 gig backbone in eight, nine um, or nine and ten, whatever it was. and and really and get out go out and get their own fiber i mean that was get, being able to get their own fiber was just a huge huge step um for internet too instead of having to just buy circuits uh buy lit circuits because you know once you have the fiber you can you can do pretty much anything that that the that you're interested in spending the money on hardware to do so i think you know that transition that took place in the in in around 20, 2010 was certainly to my mind one of the one of the most significant transitions that took place uh, post the start of, of internet too. Um, you know up till that time, you know you're basically going out to um, uh, which uh, Quest or whoever and and you know buying a bunch of hundred gig circuits or 10 gig circuits as the case might be. And, and, you know, if you need more capacity, your only choice is to go renegotiate contracts for circuits. If you have, once you have, and, and what, you know, the other thing, the other thing that they did, and this, this actually happened fairly early on, I think, was the, the, the program with level three to um, make fiber available to the regional network. So, for instance, one of the things that UNL did that, that one of the last thing, you know, when 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 David Swanson got the became part of the um, they became a tier two site for uh, for the collider um, at CERN, you know, Internet to, or Inter, uh, um, 
Nebraska at that time had, I think, a one gig connection. I'm not sure it was even a gig. I think it was a gig connection down to um, to Internet 2. And um, this was just simply not going to, I mean, this really wasn't going to cut it. Um, and, and because of the program that Internet 2 had in place with Level 3 at the time, we were able to, um, you know, um, we being me and, and management of, of, uh, of the CRC, or Computing Resource Center at the time, were able to convince the, the university to buy fiber between um, Lincoln and Kansas City. So we actually were one of the first uh, dark fiber connected um, infrastructures. And then, you know, we went out and got some, got some, you know, fairly lightweight um, optical equipment um, and, and lit up, uh, we lit up a couple of 10 gig circuits, one for general purpose connectivity to, to Nebraska. And then a second one that, that we basically bypassed all of the campus network and ran directly into uh, Dave Swanson's lab where he had Prairie Fire at the time um, and where the tier two site was. And um, they, they, once we, once we did that, they turned, they turned into probably, I, I think they turned into the biggest user of the uh, CMS because they were just, they were really, really good at moving, moving bits. That there's some people working there who I don't think are there anymore. Obviously, David's not there, but um, uh, some of the other people have left as well. And um, they, they, uh, they were just amazing at what they were able to accomplish. But again, that was made possible by the fact that um, that Internet two. Um, was an enormous assistance in, in helping us work with level three to, um, to negotiate getting the fiber contracts. And they did that for a number, you know, a number of other places around. Um, it was the, the thing that they did, it was called FiberCo. Um, you can go look that up at some point. It was um, basically there were, you know, discounted prices for, for dark fiber. Okay. Uh, Linda Roos was very much involved in that. Um, she's someone else you might want to talk to, actually. She's, um, she's in Indiana now. She, used, she also used to work at Nebraska, um, and then she worked for um, Ornet in Ohio for a while, and she spent at Internet 2 longer than I was. Um, okay. Was, so we'll try to get in touch with her. I might need some help finding, you know, these people. Yeah, this uh, I've been meaning to... She's she's a long term long time friend of mine. Um, I'm going to chat with her at some point here pretty quickly. Okay, cool. that'd be awesome. Okay, well that's all the questions I have. I think this was a really good history of Internet too. And Donald, I don't think he has any more questions, right? Nope, nothing at all. All right. So one question, yes, Dale, is: Are you you're retired now? So you probably don't have any blogs or anything else. That you're I, doing. I, I don't do that. Um, I, I actually have never kept that kind of uh, that kind of thing out there anyway. And yes, I am retired now. And, and most, you know, a lot of the stuff I would have had, the stuff that predated my work at Internet 2, I would have left in Nebraska anyway. And heaven only knows what they did with it. Um, I still have, you know, most of my history with Internet 2 in one form or another here. I haven't gotten rid of that stuff. Um, not all of it, anyway. Some of it that was obviously pointless. Yeah. One of the things that that you should 
give a little bit of thought to, and and um, this one of the things that I'm going to try to work on a little bit with the uh, Internet Legacy Institute is is um, thinking about the international connectivity to the to Internet Two. Internet Two is not the only um, national research and education network in the world, right? Um, you know, there's uh, Jayon in Europe. There's Wide. Um, uh, why there's there's two or three in Japan of which wide is one yes um, although I think wide is less critical at this point than NII and um, some others and nor there's Norgenet um, which is actually probably one of the very first uh, or Norgenet may be the oldest of all of them actually you know and it's Finland Norway Sweden Denmark Green, uh, Iceland, I think that's it. They're still very, very active and very progressive. Um, um, it's a great organization, actually. And one of the things, a lot of my time at Internet2 was spent working on international connectivity, basically put in some, some of the first high-speed connections across the Atlantic, negotiated and built the first connection across the Atlantic that was not just buying a circuit, but um, basically um, getting getting um, essentially getting spectrum from a provider and lighting it ourselves. You know, buying the cards and and all that stuff. That didn't, in the long run, turn out to be all that useful, um, but it was a really interesting experiment, and it led to the development of of this consortium that operates in the North Atlantic. That's you know Surfnet, Norgenet, Jayon, Internet Two, Canary. Um, that has like four or five, probably five circuits, five hundred gig circuits across the Atlantic at this point, and balances traffic and so forth. So okay. Um, anyway, there, there's an awful lot of activity through the years that have developed um, about that, and you know that's part of 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 the history of this stuff that you know needs to get captured better than it has. Yeah. Been. Well, I'll reach out to some folks in that region and see what I can do to find out. This was awesome. And um, thank you for joining us, okay? Subscribe to the History of Networking on your favorite podcast service or follow along at rule11.tech.